as much as I'm very grateful to my parents, I think there's another side actually of that coin that should be acknowledged, which is as much as they sort of raised me on this kind of like hyper rational money, whatever. And and I think that that is great in many ways, but also leaves room at times to discount the emotional side of money. And I think that that is worthy of time and attention. Welcome to Beyond Dollar, a podcast where we have deep and honest conversations about how money affects our well-being. I'm Sarah Lee Kane, And I'm Garrett Philbin. We want to give you a space to explore your relationship with money. The guilt, stress, exhilaration, and fear. No topic is taboo. In this episode, we chat with Allison Cade, the editorial director of Fabric, where she's building a personal finance publications for young families. She's also written about money in places like Bloomberg, Forbes, Real Simple, and The Today Show. We talk about how her parents taught her how to be responsible with money, which are skills she still uses to this day. We also get into the nitty gritty of her upbringing and how she's prepared to adult with her finances. Allison also shares how those who aren't taught to be confident around money can become so, even if they don't know where to start. Look, there's no shame in needing help. And if you feel like it's a stretch to hire a professional... Do what the smart kids do. Grab a book and implement the money lessons you learn so you can be a total badass. And do you like the sound of free? I know I do. And if you do, the amazing people at Audible are offering a free 30-day trial where you can nab two free audiobooks. And if you decide to stay on, memberships start at just $15 a month. To start your free trial and grab those two free audiobooks, head over to www.beyondthedollar.co backslash audible. That's www.beyondthedollar.co backslash A-U-D-I-B-L-E. To check out resources we shared in this episode, including a guide to using your values and your financial decisions, head over to www.beyondthedollar.co. Get ready, grab a seat, and let's go Beyond the Dollar. Allison, welcome to Beyond the Dollar. We are super, super excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm just so excited about this topic because I think Garrett and I have covered multiple episodes. I know at least one, multiple episodes where we talk about our stories growing up and they weren't always the most positive. So it's really nice to bring someone on who is super grateful to their parents for basically teaching you, I call it kick-ass money skills, (laughs) however you want to name it. But yeah, so, you know, let's start off with describing what was it like growing up with your parents? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, you know, this is exciting and not least because my parents are definitely going to be listening to this podcast recording. So (laughs) money skills, guys, get excited. So... My parents are a little bit on the far end of the teaching your kids personal responsibility spectrum. So that includes money, but is not just money. So there are many, many anecdotes to choose from, but started pretty young. I feel like one of the earlier memories was in sixth grade, my math teacher had all of the kids bring home their tests so that their parents could sign their tests and acknowledge whatever their grades are. So my parents called a conference with that teacher to tell him that, you know, look, that's external responsibility. We don't want her to be accountable to us for her grades. We really want her to be personally accountable. So like if the kid's failing, you can call us. But otherwise, you know, if she gets a B, she should sit with that B herself. So 
I was the only child in my class who signed her own tests and handed them back to her teacher. I love it. Yeah. So they were into it. And at the time, it was a little bit like, okay, this is kind of weird. I feel strange about this. It's a little extreme. But being a parent now myself, I actually really admire that. I think that it goes a long way because when I got to college, I had friends who didn't know how to balance a checkbook or how to take care of themselves as adult people. And it's something that I'd been doing for quite a long time. So on the financial side, in college, as a matter of fact, so freshman year, everyone had to be on a meal plan. But starting sophomore year, you didn't have to be and I didn't want to be. And the meal plan normally cost something like $3,000 for the year. So my parents wrote me a check for $3,000 and said, feed yourself. So I fed myself, right? And I think that I fed myself on less than $3,000 and I kept the difference and they knew it. They don't care. That's great. Well, welcome to budgeting. Like fabulous. You made 500 bucks. Congrats. And it wasn't even that strange given the way that they'd sort of brought me up around money. So I got my first checking account when I was about 12, specifically timed to my bat mitzvah because they wanted to make sure that I signed all of the deposit slips myself and balanced all of the math myself to make sure that I'm balancing my own checkbook. And then every month the bank would send us a paper notification and my parents would sort of watch me balance my own little thing and I'd put it in a binder. And, you know, it started really early, but it also meant that the transition to adulthood was not traumatic and I've never carried credit card debt. Like it's, it's really great to feel like you have this, this sort of training that didn't even fully resonate as training because it was just sort of the thing that we did. What would you say some of the most impactful things were? Was it starting early? Was it having you balance the checkbook and really see the numbers? Are there specific things that jump out to you that were really the most impactful that your parents did? So that's a great question. I think that really more than anything, it was the vibe more than anything. So there were material skills that obviously were impactful and educational, right? But I think that it was the fact that they trusted me, but that they expected me to live up to their expectations. Like we never had a conversation about what happens when I spend more than $3,000 and I can't feed myself. Like that wasn't a conversation because go feed yourself, like go make it work, you know? And like they, I, so I got a credit card when I started driving because, you know, it's good, but I, I got it in my learner's permit. So I'm like 15 and I feel like for, again, a lot of my friends, they had these emergency credit cards that are linked to their parents' accounts and if in need, but this was my card. I mean, I was a minor, so my dad was, you know, a co-account holder, but he said to me, look, kid, if you get into debt and screw this up, you're going to screw up all of our credit. This is linked to my credit. Don't screw it up. But <laughs> No pressure. Like, that was no pressure, of, kid. But, but like, that was kind of it, you know, and I had my checking account. So there were no rules. It wasn't for emergencies. I could just use my credit card and I used it whenever I felt like using it, which was fine because then I paid it from my own money from my own checking account. And the only rule was never spend more than you have because you're going to screw up our credit. Don't screw up our credit. And like, I, I think that that vibe of trust, the fact that he understood that at 15, I was capable of not screwing up his credit meant that... I too believed I was capable and it wasn't really a conversation that I would overspend. And I think that perhaps if I'd been a different sort of kid who was likelier to take some of those negative actions, then maybe things would have gone differently and maybe they wouldn't have given me as much latitude as they did, but they did this for both me and for my sister. And I feel like 
that was the most impactful thing, sort of the expectation that we can do this. So then I did it. I love that because what's also coming across is not only the trust that your parents had, is they were very clear about the consequences and that whatever consequences really came out, it was up to you to do it. Because I've spoken with a lot of previous coaching clients and even friends where when something did happen, their parents kind of came in and I don't want to say rescue them, but help them, right? And so that's not a bad thing, not judging that. Mm -hmm. But what can come across is that the child will think, oh, well, someone's going to help me if I'm ever in trouble. And maybe that sense of, I guess, responsibility is not as heightened as what you had growing up, maybe? I think so. And I think it's the fact that the consequences were real consequences. So the consequence wasn't if you overspend, I'm going to ground you. The consequence was the actual real world consequence. If you overspend, you're going to screw up all of our credit. Don't do that, right? Or like realistically, if I had spent more than my money allotted and actually had trouble feeding myself, they wouldn't have actually let me starve, I'm sure. But I don't, I don't know what would have happened because it, we didn't really have a contingency I mean, my assumption is they would have given me a bare minimum. They would have been like, okay, well, go feed yourself some Goya beans. Like you're not eating like you were eating before. I had a, I had a job in college and I think the answer would have been, can you feed yourself from that job? Because ideally you would feed yourself from that job. You used up our money. Like they wouldn't have actually let me starve, but they certainly wouldn't have just given me more money carte blanche. And I think that there too, it's not like we'll punish you. It's just... Do you want to eat? Like it was, but, but which is in the, in the real world, like those are the actual consequences as an adult. I mean, you're not going to get grounded if you get into credit card debt as an adult. You're just going to screw up your credit. If you spend more than your food budget as an adult, you're not getting grounded. You're just going to have to figure out a way to feed yourself. So I think that that was kind of the real lesson that I took away from that. And what's fun is you can ask your parents after they listen to this episode, hey, parents, what would you have done? You know, and <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's a conversation that I was having that I was having recently. I mean, similarly when I so I graduated from college in 2008. And I'm lucky Me that I Me too. It was yeah. not the best of times, wasn't it? It well, so my first job was actually at this financial recruiting firm in the height of the recession and they hired me the week before Lehman Brothers collapsed and Lehman Brothers collapsed on my second day of work. So I'm sure if I had interviewed a week later, of course they wouldn't have hired me. But in that time, so that summer, I moved back to New York, which is where I went to school, but my parents are in Florida, without a job. And I think at that point, I had my own savings. Like, they didn't give me money to move to New York, but I'd been working throughout college and not spending all the money they gave me for food. And so I had some money, and I stayed with friends. And luckily, I found a job within a few weeks or a month. I was also not being picky and just needed to find something. But recently, my husband asked me, well, what would have happened if you didn't? Like, what would have happened if it really took six months? Because I, I didn't have six months of runway. And I don't know. I need to ask them. I, I don't know the true answer. I think, again, they wouldn't have actually let me starve or be homeless. But, but it would have been, like, I think a, a real, like, you know, I guess here's another month after that, you're coming home. Like, I, I don't know what it would have been. But Again, it's interesting actually to realize that we didn't really discuss contingencies. It was just sort of like make it work. What I picked up from what you shared about that conversation, you know, if you overspend on your credit cards, then there are real world consequences is they didn't do that in a vacuum, right? They'd given you a checking account at 12 and mm -hmm. been able to see kind of how you would react and what, like how you would show up um, when you were put in a position to be able to make mistakes. 
Right. So, you know, they had some data to go off of, which I think is also a really, really important thing that they didn't necessarily have to have those conversations because they probably saw you like had this ability to be self-sufficient or to make decisions even when they weren't easy. So I think that's a really important thing too, is to give enough lead time to be able to see like how a child will react in certain situations. And then just, you know, little by little be able to put them as they grow, right? The situations will become a bit more real, like you said, and have more real life consequences. I think that's a great point. And actually, so now that I have a child, so I mean, she's only nine months, she can't talk, much less balance a checkbook. But I think that it's really important to know your kid and one size doesn't fit all. And so not to toot my own horn, I was, but you know, I was a responsible little nerd kid. And so, right, if I'd been failing, I'm sure my parents wouldn't have been okay with me signing all of my own tests. And I think that if you have a kid who can handle that level of responsibility, it is educational and great. But I think that you risk teaching them the wrong lessons if you have a kid who isn't well equipped to learn those lessons by throwing them into the deep end. And I think that then there are other ways to teach them about money. So if I had been really struggling in school, then maybe the conversation still would have been about being self-motivated, but maybe it would have been about, you know, what resources and tools do I need to do better? And I think that if I had really struggled with overspending as a child, then maybe my allowance, you know, like we would have sat down and really hashed out, how do we budget this? What are you going to spend with it? Versus, you know, little Allison hoarding all of her allowance money. So, so yeah, I don't know. That's really interesting. I'm curious, whenever you had these conversations, was it to like your parents together had these conversations with you or was it just your father and then your mother or was it like a combination of all three? Good question. Not like official. I wouldn't say that it was officially the three of us. It, in my memory, I think it kind of comes down to both parents. They were both definitely on board. I think a lot of the actual sort of official financial actions were mostly my father. So we, we had to go to the bank. So it was a local community bank in Florida where they knew the people and we had to petition to let them give a 12-year-old a checking account, which again, obviously my parents were co-signers. And I had those, do you remember those precious moments things from the 90s. Yeah, those were my checks. It was, I was very stoked. And so that had to be a, a special situation. And so I, I think it was just my dad at the bank with me that day. My dad was the one who checked my math on my balancing of my checkbook. And I do remember he was the one who told me not to ruin his credit. But I think it was my mom who wrote me a $3,000 check for food. So I, I think it, it kind of came from both of them, although not in, it didn't feel like it was a weighty we are sitting and having the talk. It was kind of like, hey, here's a $3,000 check. <laughs> and how does the way that they approached it, but you know, it sounds like together, but yet separate at times. And how is the way that they approach teaching you about money kind of impacting how you are going to approach it with your own daughter as she grows up? So a few things. Given that I've spent most of my career writing and talking about personal finance, I currently do more of our actual investing and I'm more into it than my husband is. But I also think it's important for him to know what's going on. So he actually, these days, he's the one who pays the credit card bills and is like on top of it. Otherwise, he doesn't really know what's happening. So I think that to some extent, it's fine for it to be hoarding to taste. So if either of us is going to really 
go deep into like mutual fund expense ratios, I'm perfectly glad to do that. And if he doesn't want to do that, I think that's absolutely legitimate. But then I'll just make sure to teach it to our daughter. So I think that everyone should really have those skills, whether or not they feel like being the people who do it on a day-to-day basis. And I also think just from an educational component, I also really just like the idea of not making it this stark transition to adulthood. Like we did everything for you. Now you're 18, go make a 401k and do the things, goodbye, right? And so I think that that too is a pretty important transition. I will say, so actually, so I also, even in terms of investing, I mean, there are many anecdotes in in this well, but my parents did also open up a Roth IRA for me when I was 16 because you have to be making income in order to invest for retirement. But as they liked to joke slash brag to their friends that I had a tax deductible allowance, I worked in their offices. They're both sole proprietors. And so after school, I would be like my mom's receptionist, a little bit for my dad. I mostly worked for my mom. And so they would write me a paycheck of $90 or whatever it was per, you know, whatever pay period. And they would pay me to be there twice a week after school receptionist and then not give me an allowance because they're paying me to be their receptionist. And so then that would be deposited in this checking account, et cetera. But unbeknownst to me, they were matching those contributions in an IRA. And so I don't think I was able to max it out because I didn't, I didn't make that much money. But when I did become an adult, there was, so that was actually one case in which it was a little bit stark, I think, when it was like, hey, guess what? Here, I'm going to mail you 10 years of receipts or something like that. <laughs> and so my dad sent me like a giant package with like all of these paper statements in 2009. So I'd lost a bunch of money, but I didn't know about it. So I kind of felt like, yeah, great. I'm starting fresh, uh, which was nice. <laughs> you can only see it go up without actually understanding the ramifications of the, of the recession on, on myself. But there too, I, I just sort of had this account and started saving for retirement. So it wasn't a question of being an adult and suddenly having this revelation that retirement matters because I'd been saving for retirement before I knew that I was saving for retirement. So. What I picked out of there that's really important when you spoke about how you and your husband kind of deal with money together is that you don't have to have, like both people don't necessarily have to be equal in it, but it's important to both be involved in some capacity that makes sense and works for both of you. So that if you feel more confident investing, great, you can take that over. If he feels good about just paying the bills and handling some other aspects, then that's great. Like it doesn't have to be equal, but really being involved and having some visibility is really important for both people. I think so. And I also think the comfort level of both people, you know, certainly I know that when it comes to stereotypical gender roles, at least according to many studies, et cetera, women tend to make household purchasing decisions, but men in relationships tend to do the finances and some of these weightier tasks, you know, like if you're buying, whether it's a life insurance policy or you're investing in the stock market, not always, but often that tends to be a male task. And I think that, first of all, it's crucial for women and for everyone to know where their money is and what the deal is, but also to just feel confident and comfortable. I mean, when you hear people talk about you know, I hope it never happens to anyone, but certainly there is financial abuse that takes place. If someone is in an emotionally unhealthy relationship, a lot of times they'll stay in that relationship because they don't, they don't have the cash to leave, but also they might not have the understanding of their own accounts. They might have abusive co-signers. And I think that having an understanding and a comfort level, so sure, I might choose the exact mutual funds 
but he understands what accounts we have. He knows what a mutual fund is. I might say, hey, this is a cool target date fund. Maybe do that. And he's like, okay, cool. But he's buying that target date fund, right? We're having conversations. Both of us are environmental peeps. And so we're like talking about how we can start to think about investing in impact related funds or et cetera, whether it's transitioning or, you know, investing our additional money in funds that have environmental and social components. I'm into it. He's super into it. Okay. So we have a conversation in which I say, well, I did some research. Here's some funds that I think are good, but I'm not buying them for him. I mean, he needs to look at it. And then he's like, okay, well, quite how environmental is it? And the answer is, I don't know, read the prospectus. And so so, that means that he needs to be involved in what he cares about. So if he cares about this impact, he can't outsource it to me fully. I can help, but he needs to take responsibility. And similarly, you know, if I really care about our spending, I need to be involved. If like everyone needs to know where everything is. And then I think from that place of knowing and understanding and feeling comfortable, you can say, yeah, you pay the credit card bill. I don't feel like getting involved. I love that. I, it's so interesting is hearing just your anecdotes and how confident you are. Complete opposite to what I was in my teens. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us more about, I mean, I know you've spoken it on the show before, but I, I'd love to hear. I did. Yeah. So I did write an essay. I think it's it will be live by the time this episode is live. We'll link it in the show notes. So the essay that I wrote was essentially how I'm really afraid of passing on my money baggage to my son. And it had to do with basically how I grew up. And so a lot of it was very conflicted. So I've already said before many times that I grew up with accountants. Everyone was in the finance industry. And so I knew all the technical jargon. I knew how to balance a checkbook. I knew how to use QuickBooks at a very young age, all of those things. But when it came to the emotional aspect or even being more open about talking about money, that was a big no-no. It was almost like, okay, here's how to balance a checkbook, but we're not going to tell you why we spent this money or why we're afraid we're going to go broke, like things like that. And so growing up with that conflicted sense of money sort of led me to make a bunch of mistakes and not feel as confident, you know, now that I've turned it around mostly, but it took a long time to do that. And it really took me being confident and willing to take those risks and understand the consequences, the real life consequences for that to happen. So I love hearing like great stories about parents. So yay to your parents, especially now you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thanks mom and dad. They're definitely, I'm going to send this to them. They will they have to listen. I'm sure they will. <laughs> <laughs> where, do you, where do you think that the psychological aspect of money comes from with your family? You know, now that I think back, it, it's one of those things where I think for the most part, most parents really just want the best for their children, but they're also dealing with their own stuff too, right? And so if they're too busy dealing with their own stuff and trying not to pass it on to their children, it's going to kind of pass through. I mean, because I think my mom and my dad tried their best to really not have certain conversations about money in front of me, but you could feel what you could say tension, you know, whatever it was. So then I picked up on that. And so whatever, whenever they would talk about money, whenever we went grocery shopping, that was always present. You know, I think I had a really great conversation with my mom a few weeks ago about this. And, and she was like, yeah, you know, I wish I was a little bit more honest about certain things. And but at the same time, you did what you thought was best. And so I think when it comes to raising my son to be money smart, money confident, it's like I can do the best that I can. And if somehow he picks up on my attention and I notice it, I then I can figure a way to course correct. 
Do you, I don't know if you're familiar with, I mean, there's many different systems for these money personalities. I feel like you can find many quizzes in the world, but there's one type that I've heard referred to as a money monk. So this personality type I've seen described particularly as not always, but often as people who have religious backgrounds or these sort of conflicted feelings about money. So I don't know. I'm curious to hear if you think this is sort of like your background. And, and there's certainly, I think to some extent, I hope he doesn't mind my talking about him. He probably does. But I think that this is a little bit my, my husband and his background a little bit, just feeling that money is bad. Just that, you know, like as people say, money is the source of all evil. And so sometimes that means giving it away to charity, which I think is fabulous, but maybe not in a methodical way or spending it because you feel weird having a bank account that gets really big because it feels somehow less ethical having tens of thousands of dollars in your account than it does buying something just because one is a big number and the other one is a piece of clothing. I wonder if you feel like your baggage came from facts on the ground, i.e. we could use more money if we had more, we wouldn't be weird about it versus a psychology that you're able to sort of understand as an adult and, and think about in terms of how you teach your son. So interesting. We did cover this. I think I think it was Money Myths, Garrett, if I remember, we'll put that in the show notes too. It was. It's really interesting what you're saying because I think because I, I kind of overthink things. So I've been overthinking this a lot lately, <laughs> is is actually whether or not culture plays into this. And so I, you know, I'm Asian. So I grew up in a very traditional Asian household where the females are typically, they run the household and then the males go out and are the breadwinners. And so I think there was a lot of conflict in my household in terms of those roles. Like my mom was a breadwinner and she also ran, ran the household. I mean, not that my dad wasn't earning money. He was, but there was a lot of, it was almost like a little bit of a conflict because they didn't play to society's roles in terms of the culture that, that they were brought up in. And so I think that's part of it. I don't know. That would be something really interesting to explore. Maybe we can bring somebody on to talk about this in the future is like, does, how does culture really play into raising children around money? Because I think one thing I don't agree with, but I know a lot of people do, is that in, in Asian cultures in general, you don't leave the house until you're married. And so you could be 30 and still living with your parents. And it's perfectly fine. But I decided that I didn't want that. I left <laughs> when I was single. But I know many people that are still with their parents and they're fine with it. Which obviously could be a source of intense financial savings. But, but I feel like there's sort of two ways to do that, right? There's the I am not financially independent because I still live in my parents' root or the I'm super financially independent because I live with my parents' root. Yeah, it's true. And just going back with the money personalities, I know, Garrett, you want to go over really quickly the money archetypes because I think that would relate really well to this. Yeah, we've talked about it in that same episode and there are a bunch of different like type archetypes or ways of looking at, like you said, the money monk. And there are different types of quizzes out there. I did a training with Deborah Price and she had eight different money archetypes that were like the innocent, the fool, the victim, the martyr, tyrant, magician, let's see, warrior. And it's just really interesting. I think no matter what kind of archetype you're looking at or whatever word you use to describe it, the idea of archetypes are really helpful just to be able to identify like what archetype is speaking in any given situation. So if you're having a conversation around money with your spouse and you're feeling like you're being attacked or that the person isn't taking into account your needs or that things are unfair and they aren't listening to you. It's like, oh, okay, what archetype is speaking? Oh, that could be the victim, right? And here's how that 
archetype kind of got into my understanding and my knowing right through how I was raised. And so that's just what I love about archetypes, no matter which ones you use, is just being able to see it as a lens of like who is speaking and kind of similar idea of mindfulness is realizing like I am not my thoughts. I am not this archetype. It doesn't define me, but this is just how I'm showing up right now based on, you know, my conditioning and how I was raised as a child and what my parents taught me financially. I think that's great. And, and, and for what it's worth, I also think as much as I'm very grateful to my parents, I think there's another side actually of that coin that should be acknowledged, which is as much as they sort of raised me on this kind of like hyper rational money, whatever. And, and I think in many ways it behooves me, right? I'm making a money decision and I'll be like, well, let's just do the cost benefit analysis. And, and it's very like rational. And, and I think that that is great in many ways, but also leaves room at times to discount the emotional side of money. And I think that that is worthy of time and attention. So currently I, I work at a company called Fabric, but years ago I had worked at a company called LearnVest and I would hear from all of our readers and so many of them were deep in credit card debt. And that was my first job full time writing about money for a living. And it was kind of, I mean, it sounds sort of stupid, but it was a revelation for me being like, oh, right, because yeah, no, people overspend. And like, and I know that that sounds a little bit absurd, but given my background and the fact that I'd been balancing a checkbook since I was 12, it's important to remember. And I, I forget when, but a few years ago, I think I was having a conversation with one of my parents who was discussing, I don't even remember what, but some friend of theirs who made some financial decision that was bad. And they were just like, oh boy, like, how could this be? Like, oh, I, 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 and they were just, they're flabbergasted and they just couldn't understand it. And I remember being like, well, you know, money is very emotional. It's tied into power. It's tied into, to, you know, if you're angry, you make certain money decisions. If you're sad, you make money decisions. It's about your upbringing. Not everyone grew up as hyper-responsible. And, and they were like, oh, huh. And I think that that's ridiculous to some extent. I mean, of course it's emotional, but I think that whatever our perspective, sometimes it's hard to shake ourselves out of it. And I think that being hyper-rational can also stand in the way of understanding other people's motivations. And when you're talking to friends who are making money decisions about gifts that they're buying for people and trips that you're taking together, or when you're talking to a spouse about their money perspective, it's important to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And as much as like I am grateful for the nuts and bolts of this, I think that the learning aspect for me has been to put myself in a lot of those other money personas and and to remember like this isn't science this is as much an art as it is a science absolutely true i was just this next question i was going to ask was you know to to those who may not have had a great upbringing or they did but money wasn't necessarily discussed like what would you say to somebody who go oh man Allison, i'm not as good as with money as you because X, Y, and Z about my parents. Like, what would you say to them if they were to, you were to have a conversation with them? Well, I would just say, start now. I mean, it doesn't really matter. I mean, sure, my parents were borderline on the far end of that spectrum, but I've had conversations with friends in their 30s who don't have credit cards. And I've been like, hey, you should have a credit card. You don't have credit. Just, you know, buy that stick of gum once a month, whatever. So then that friend that I'm thinking of did that, has a credit card makes a tiny purchase every so often, and now he's building credit. Would it have been cool if he had it at 15? Sure, but 
he got it at 30 and now he's doing it and now he's building credit. So, I mean, I think that just start both for yourself and for your children. And certainly it's easier said than done given all of the emotional aspects of money, but I'm a big proponent of being honest and frank because I'm not sure what good it does for us not to be. I mean, certainly be polite, have tact, but I think to some extent that means giving your kids the real answers, right? So instead of saying, oh, mom, what happens if I overspend on my credit card? Like, oh, sweetie, like that will be sad. (laughs) No, you'll ruin my credit. Like that's the real answers. Tell me the truth. And I think that similarly in the workplace, I mean, obviously it's been, you know, written and talked about to death, but people not talking about and not having transparency with how much money they make is probably at least part of the reason for the gender wage gap. I mean, I think that a lot can really go a long way if we just talk honestly. I mean, I think that there's a lot of people who don't plan for their financial futures because it's scary and they don't want to. And I think that it's hard to overcome that emotional component, but at a certain point, I can help you try to find the right words, but also there aren't going to be the best words. You just need to say the words. And I think that that can really go a long way. I mean, I, I've spoken to readers and customers actually in my current job who haven't finished making their wills for their families or getting life insurance because it's emotional, because you have to think about your own death. And I don't have a great answer for that, honestly. Like it, it sucks thinking about your own death, but also, especially if you have kids and even if you don't, it's about planning out your assets, but it's also about who's going to take care of your child if you were to pass away. I mean, who's that guardian going to be? And again, I can help you with suggested language, but really it's just kind of like, do it. Like, just talk about it. It's uncomfortable. I'm sorry. Just do it. And I think that a lot of money conversations can be that way, but the more you have them, the less weird it becomes over time. Yeah, just speaking from the wills, I will say, figuring out who would possibly take care of our son if my husband were to ever, and I would ever pass, that was, oh man, that was a difficult conversation. Like who who would, yeah, because we have family all over the world. So it makes it more complicated because I have family all over the world. He has family all over the world. And so it was, it took us like two weeks to figure out possible people. So it is very, very emotional. I'll just throw that out there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's great that you did it. And I mean, well, and there's the emotional component. So our, our daughter's nine months. So we made the will. We really probably should have made it before she was born. We made it when she was like four months old. But so we chose one of our siblings to be her guardian. And, and we had that conversation, which wasn't so difficult because, you know, it was my sister and she was flattered. And she's like, yes, you know, I'd be honored. But we also designated alternates. And so that's a conversation too, because I want our backup guardians to know they were chosen, but then you have to have a conversation about the fact that we love you, we would trust you with our daughter, but also you're the backup. And that too is a sticky, difficult conversation that I guess we could just write in the will and let them figure it out. But I want to make sure they're on board and I also want them to know here's why. And as, as awkward as that is and as that was, it was a conversation that we just sort of said like, look, you know, I mean, I don't have to get into it in depth here, but really it's just a question of the guardian that we chose has children already and and therefore, you know, we think that that makes sense. We love you. We think you're great. You don't currently have children. We think that for now, you know, our daughter should be with her cousins if something were to happen and we love you. Here's the hug. You know, like it's uncomfortable, but also I think people get it. And if you don't have those conversations, the repercussions can be so much more dire. 
I think the thread that I'm seeing in what you're saying is just like, you don't have to be perfect, just do it. Right? So the conversation, it may not, it likely won't be perfect. We're humans, it's not going to happen. But as long as you both have positive intentions and are willing to be honest, transparent, and communicate around what you were saying about who's going to be the guardian, then it can work. And also around when you said that advice to people who haven't gotten started yet, it's just like, just just go, just get started. Because for you, I mean, they can look at you and say, wow, you're so good at the tactical part. But you also mentioned that the emotional component wasn't something you were raised with. And so you had to learn that. And so, you know, you had to go through that experience yourself. And so there could be people who have a better understanding of the emotional side, but none of the tactical and yeah, just go and get started and it's not going to be perfect and it will be messy at times, but it's never, ever too late. And as long as you make that commitment, that's what I say a lot of times with clients. It's like, it doesn't matter what happened in the past. If you choose to make a different decision now, then like you've altered the course where your life has been going and you can just make a conscious choice to be different moving forward. And yeah, look in the rearview mirror every once in a while to learn from what has happened. But as long as you make a conscious decision today, that things are going to be different then they're going to be different and you can completely change the trajectory of your life. Absolutely. And I would add, you can change things as you go too. So you can redo your will. So if after those emotional two weeks, Sarah decided, you know what, I, I changed my mind. Someone else is going to be the guardian. She could change her will, right? Like if my friend who opened a credit card decided he wants a different credit card, this wasn't the best. Okay. Open another credit card. Like there's, there's, you can keep, changing. Like none of this is set in stone, but the inertia that can come as a result of perfectionism can be crippling and can be so much worse than doing it in an okay way that isn't the absolute best way of the world. I remember I have, I'm forgetting exactly the the research that I've seen, but basically research that I've seen at some point in the past indicates that one of the most important things when it comes to investing is asset allocation. So it's about what kinds of investments you have. It's not about finding that one perfect stock or that one perfect mutual fund. It's about, first of all, doing it. And second of all, doing it more or less right. But it's not about this. It's not like either I find the absolute best stock in the world or I don't invest. Investing in a way that's like pretty good is so much better than not investing. And I think that that really holds true for so many aspects of financial life. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, one last question <laughs> is, um, how are you using money to live beyond the dollar? So I think that it's not fully related to this conversation, but one of the things that's kind of a pet topic of mine that I feel strongly about is charitable giving. And I think that that's something that often doesn't get enough airtime in the personal finance world because we spend a lot of time focusing on ourselves. And I think that it's important to think about in your budget, how are you going to set aside time, assets, money, or volunteer work to help others? And to the extent that we're talking about our natural emotional states, truth is I'm kind of selfish by nature. Like I was the kid who would like scream and cry when like someone wanted to bite of my ice cream. Like I still have that in me. I don't feel like I am naturally generous, but kind of to our conversation about just doing it. Okay. So I'm not naturally generous. I can still give to charity. It's a conscious choice. Even if emotionally I might hoard my little jewels, just 
just don't like just write a check just don't and i think that that's really an important part of the conversation as well awesome so where can people find you online so a few places the primary one of which is that i am the editorial director of a personal finance startup called fabric our url is meetfabric.com to read our articles about parenting and personal finance it's meetfabric.com slash blog. And uh, I'd love to not only have people read things, but also write to me. And I'd love to hear about what's on your mind as we're, as we're trying to really try to create a community and create articles that resonate not just about money, but what young parents really care about and what really matters. And totally take Allison up on her offer. We chatted very briefly, I think maybe 30-ish minutes in person and just, it was an amazing oh, conversation. Thank you. Definitely one I remembered. It's yeah. really kind. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Allison, for coming on Beyond the Dollar. Well, thank you for having me. I look forward to seeing this in the real world and especially to sending it to my parents. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Beyond the Dollar. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are released. Also, if you feel like putting your money towards the things that really matter is a challenge for you, then download our values-based spending guide. You'll gain clarity around what matters most to you in life, be able to name your most important values, and start thinking about how to only put your money toward those things. To download the values-based spending guide, go to www.beyondthedollar.co. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Beyond the Dollar.